1: most of my life i've worked to a goal you achieve the goal and you work out where the next one is and you work out how to do that you know and it's then you get this thing that sort of takes you from left field and gives you an opportunity that you could never have dreamt of welcome to don't stop us now
0: I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're here to share fascinating stories and advice from innovative and pioneering women around the globe. Plus,
2: don't miss our regular how-to episodes where we dissect a specific career issue or problem. In fact, this is your chance to let us know what other topics you'd like us to explore. Email us at hello at don'tstopusnow.co And we'll choose one of your suggestions for our last how-to episode
0: of 2018. Indeed, we will. Now for this week's episode. Hello, dear listener. Our guest today is Dr. Fiona Wood, a world-leading burns specialist an innovative and respected surgeon and researcher. She's a former Australian of the Year for her pioneering burns research and innovations. And pretty incredibly, she was also voted the country's most trusted person for six successive years. Incredible. It certainly <laughs> is. Fiona was thrust into the media spotlight in 2002
2: when 28 victims of the Bali bombings were flown to Perth in Western Australia to receive life-saving burns treatment. She oversaw an incredible response team with 19 surgeons and more than 100 medical staff under her direction. This was also where her earlier innovation of spray-on skin for burns victims caught the public eye for the way it greatly reduced permanent scarring.
0: In fact, Fiona co-founded a private company to promote the use of this groundbreaking spray-on skin treatment worldwide. But what's really clever about this is that all the royalties from the business are used to fund further research into burns treatment through her foundation. Which we'll have a link to on our website. Fantastic.
2: In this episode, hear Fiona talk about her absolute passion for what she does and the responsibility she feels every day in the operating theatre, how she copes and consciously fosters resilience, having seen so much suffering firsthand, how she approached commercialising spray on skin without having any commercial experience, and her memories of the remarkable experience
0: of being Australian of the Year. And Fiona is such an impressive and down-to-earth operator, despite all her amazing achievements to date. And if you're anything like Claire and I, after listening to this conversation, you'll probably feel like you want to take her out for a coffee, give her a huge hug, and high five her all at the same time. Absolutely. So with that, enjoy this
2: episode with the ever-optimistic and inspiring Dr. Fiona Wood. Fiona, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now.
1: Thank you. It's great to talk to you.
2: We're really excited to talk to you. We know that you are a woman who wears many hats. You're a burn specialist. You're a researcher, a teacher, an entrepreneur, a parent of six kids. Um, what does your day
1: day look like? Well, one of the things I'm really fortunate in, because no day is the same, (laughs) my day is very varied depending upon what's needed to be done, really. And from a clinical perspective, I, I am a surgeon. I'm a frontline clinician, and that takes the priority. And I work in an acute environment. But some acute burns goes all the way through to the reconstruction as a plastic surgeon. And so what needs to be done in a clinical environment is the first priority. And that, of course, does vary from day to day. And then from there, you fit everything else around at the research work and the sort of looking at funding or whatever it may be on that day. So this kicks off with exercise, finishes right. with sleep, often the sleep before I actually hit the pillow. <laughs> <laughs> we can imagine. You were born in Yorkshire in a, in a mining
2: village in England. And actually I was too. I wasn't born in a mining village, but I was born in the UK. What was it like your childhood?
1: Yeah, I was lucky to be in a loving family that were very active and particularly keen on doing things, and I was taught to do stuff. So we were always, whether it's sport or school, we were taught to be part of the action. And so I remember my childhood being busy. To be perfectly honest, I was one of four kids, and we were on the go. Mum and dad were very keen on, yes, you know, education, staying fit, and and as I say, yeah, you know, contributed to the community. You know being part of what was going on, like I did the Duke of Edinburgh Award as an example of that sort of thing. you know. So you do community service, you do your fitness and all that sort of stuff. So it was good.
2: Yeah, well, it sounds fantastic. And it also sounds as if it has very much impacted how you live your life today.
1: Absolutely. I think certainly you morph and change as you move through life. But I had the fortune of going to Aquath Quaker School as a 13-year-old. Her school motto was, was non-sibi sed omnibus, not for oneself but for others. And so that was a real part of my growing up. And at that point in time, my mum was teaching at the school. But prior to that, she'd been in youth work, and then she got involved in the Duke of Edinburgh Award and coordinating and things. And so she was very much in part of that. And Dad was very much part of the sport. And I know, as, as we do with our children, you can't do sport unless parents turn up and make it happen. It so hinges on volunteers. I mean, it's crazy number of volunteers every week turn out to surf club or footy or whatever, you know, and who are those volunteers? By and large, they're parents. So to be part of something is very important.
0: Fiona, it's Greta here. I totally hear that. And you're right. There are so many sort of unsung volunteers just on their every day-to-day, week-to-week, weekend basis, aren't there? But I'm really curious, how did you come to choose to study medicine?
1: It was a little bit of a you know, a happenstance, I suppose. I, I wanted to study maths and physics at Cambridge. And my two brothers, my older brothers and my mother, thought that I would be much better suited to medicine and my mum was very keen that I should always have a job and she couldn't quite conceptualise that she knew what doctors did but she didn't know what scientists did so she thought well don't you do science when you're a doctor you could be a doctor because then you'll have a job uh-huh. <laughs> you know and so there was a, a, that kind of pressure and one of my brothers was already in medical school and so I thought that it would be a great place for me to be too and so I went to London just before I filled out my university entrance form and I spent a weekend with my two brothers in London and they were right, it was a good place to be. And so I changed to medicine. I don't think I had a lot of insight really in that decision. There was so much science within medicine that you could do anything within it. And so I sort of got a little bit of capitulation, I think, but I've never looked back. They they were right. (laughs) <laughs> is, is that interesting? What did it feel like day one going into medical school? Oh, it was so exciting. I mean, I, I still remember it really clearly. I remember we, in those days we did anatomy, biochemistry and, and physiology for the first couple of years and anatomy was the first cab off the rank and doing an anatomical dissections was just like, oh, this is just exquisite. And the human body was just so, the way everything fit and it was just... So perfect that I thought, well, if a surgeon puts this back together, that's what I will be that's what I will do. I felt very fortunate that right off the blocks, if you like, I found what my passion was, not specifically burns or plastic surgery at that point, but surgery. I was like, whoa, and I really got drawn into that space that is actually an extraordinary amount of science and technology here in an operating theatre. And sort of coordinating that and bringing all that together in order to improve the life of an individual was just mind-blowing. And it still is, I'll be perfectly honest. When someone signs a consent form, and like I will be going to theater in a little half an hour or so, and to look after your child under anesthetic, now that, that is an extraordinary relationship and it's an extraordinary trust and it's unique you know so I still marvel at that whole interaction yeah it is is special it comes with it a lot of responsibility. Exactly that's what I was about to say and I
0: have to say I don't think I've ever heard anyone describe anatomy as exquisite before but I like it so that's great. If we fast forward today but and you look back over your career who or what would you say has been the biggest
1: influence on you? I've been really lucky. There's a whole army of people that sort of are flitting past my eyes right now. I mean, certainly I had a very solid base on you know, mum and dad and the, t- the teachers I had at high school in particular – absolutely extraordinary that recognized my hunger to learn. And that translated into my medical career as well. I did a B med sci and the professor of anatomy took us on a field trip to East Africa, working with the leakers and then coming back from there and and connecting with the surgical group that were progressive and that didn't Kind of have the mantra that oh girls don't do surgery, but the mantra of the best person for the job, and if you were keen enough and worked hard enough, then they would support you. There's so many people I owe. Yeah, uh, I'm as a result of a lot of energy and invested in me over time. Yeah, so and the army's still traipsing in front of my eyes, and I guess yeah you know, I've been very fortunate that I've worked with great teams of people, and not just in the traditional med. Uh, nursing, allied health, but also beyond into engineering, mathematics, into and then way out into the community, the community that support us doing our research. We can't do that without a whole lot of support. Everybody makes this happen. Who's been biggest influence? Wow. There's a big, big mountain of human energy that I've been fortunate to be connected to.
0: That's fantastic. I've read that positivity is very important to you. I'd love to hear a, a little bit more about your philosophy on positivity or positive thinking.
1: I think maybe genetically some people are glass half full and some half empty, and I know which end of the spectrum I'm at. I'm a kind of crazy, rabid optimist, and so that's I have to disclose that because awesome. clearly, clearly that will colour my answer. But you know, we know now from a neurophysiological perspective that if you think happy, you play happy music, then dopamine in your brain is released. You know, and smells and all these things that you like. One of my daughters, uh, when we had a great experience one time, when she was a teenager turned around and said, Mom, I'm going to put that in my memory box. And I think we could all look at our, our good memory box where we have good memories and take them out now and again. And, and music's an obvious one, isn't it? You, you're driving along and there's a song comes on yes. the radio. You think, Oh, God, I remember. And it makes you feel good you know so having things in your memory box that you could take out to energize you is a good idea i think even if like my mum said oh i miss you i said well you know with that perfume that we really like put it on a hanky and then put it in your pocket and so have a smell now and again and then you remind we'll have a that connection that memory that we're together
0: yeah i love it and we're big believers and practitioners wherever possible of positive psychology and yes I've heard I haven't heard the memory box but I've heard a talk of a sort of a memories jar or the and the the winds jar you know just those things that made you feel great and as you say capturing them then referring back to them
2: and m- moving topics but actually to quite a uh, pertinent memory for me The first time I really heard about you, Fiona, was during the Bali bomb in 2002. And I heard about you actually because my husband very sadly died in the Bali bomb. And so I knew some people who actually were at your hospital that you were treating. So, you know, that must have been quite a a, a seminal moment for you. I know it certainly was for me. What did you learn from that
1: whole experience? Well, first of all, my heart goes out to you. Thank you. So it was a devastatingly sad time for many people. Many people's lives changed, and we had the window to our world open. That brought with it positive but also negative. People criticizing, and I just, you know, as far as I was concerned, that was not something I would engage in. But I did find it quite hard, that personal attention, found it quite awkward. And it's still something like doing this today. I feel quite awkward <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it's more about me than about the science. And I feel that you know the science and the clinical practice is what it's about. And I'm fortunate to be speaking today, as I say, because of all that human energy that's been invested in me. But at that time I found over the years we were Doing and- you know we we were trained to, to do to respond and and we were able to do that and and in doing so, I think on a personal level, I found it increasingly difficult to talk about this without being emotional I, and I'm emotional now yeah. because at the time of doing the focus is on that and as you reflect afterwards, and it's not I've seen so much suffering over my life that it becomes, you know, it's almost accumulating, this wave is building. And yes, we're able to treat better and treat differently, but I have to also really control that wave of emotion that could swamp me if I wasn't the rabid optimist and that I make an effort to connect So that we have a team resilience that is stronger than each of our individuals' resilience.
2: I mean, I, I for one, am very thankful that you have this rabid optimism because, you know, to put it into context for our listeners, what what happened was that I think about 28 patients were flown down from Bali to Perth where you treated them and you treated them with a, a new cutting edge spray on skin. Which I think
1: it's interesting because it wasn't actually new. Some of that was why we came under some a little bit of negative pressure from some people. So how can you do that experiment on people at that time? And so we're we not. This is what we do. We had been exploring cell-based therapies, looking at the whole concept of taking your skin and your skin cells specifically and stimulating and expanding that so we can cover bigger areas of skin loss as quickly as possible to reduce the scarring. And we'd they're sprayed skin cells. Marie Stoner and I worked together from 1993. And by 1994, end of and beginning 95, we were spraying skin cells on. And then we developed a kit which we could take to the bedside. And all this had been going on for quite some time. Yeah, amazing. And as I say, the window to our world was open. And everybody said, well, how come you're doing all these different things? And we said, well, this is what we've been working on. This is what our research. But at that point, it was our standard of practice. It was what we did in our burn service to give the best possible treatment that we could. And so it was a, a, one of those urban myths that we did it at that time, but it was actually just people became aware of it at that time. Interesting.
0: Fiona, I want to go back because you talked about resilience, both team resilience and individual resilience, and certainly I think the medical profession is one that comes up against things that can be perceived as extremely sad and sometimes tragic on a regular basis and so how do you manage both your own resilience and your team's resilience?
1: I think personal resilience is an interesting one I think you can you can practice it you can grow it and certainly it's an important part of your well-being and I think it's all linked in with all the other things isn't it that kind of you know getting enough sleep, eating properly, yes. exercising, uh, being conscious of your health and wellness, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, and resilience is all tied up in that. Then that's what you bring to the party, if you like. And then you see things at work that, are, uh, that can be profoundly erosive. And when you work in a team uh, situation, you can recharge those, your batteries from those around you. And the more you invest in that team, the more capacity for that team resilience has to grow. And so, you know, it's not always sunshine and roses every day and when you're feeling a bit down you're in a situation where you know you know that you've you worked well with the team you're connected you can, you have that sort of connectivity then the resilience of others through that connectivity get you up and over the over the hump and away you go again and you talked about some of the daily habits that you
0: use to build your resilience like exercise and the like on the the times though those moments where you have down days have there been days where you've struggled with self-doubt or imposter syndrome and if so how how do you get through it
1: it's interesting isn't it because you know i think it's normal i think like many things extremes of emotion I i can be erosive and destructive but in fact to um, bowl up to work every day, saying you're the best thing since sliced bread, and believing it, it's possibly not healthy either. Yes, you know, and actually to wonder whether you've got clay feet now and again is probably not a bad idea. But to ha- to be crippled by the fact that you may think you've got this facade in front of you and you've nothing behind it clearly is pathological. But I think in that middle road, yeah, you've got a healthy regard for understanding that you might not actually have the answers to everything. <laughs> it's not at all a bad thing. And so, yeah, some days you think, oh, goodness me, how can I actually do this job? Do I know enough about this? Do I, how can I actually improve? How can I work out how to do better? And that vulnerability is actually a strength, I think. By connecting with others, whether it's locally or internationally or the literature or different specialty, then you learn. The people that don't think they need to learn anything, I think are a little dangerous. For people sure. who have that a little bit of healthy self-doubt, I'm very comfortable in that space. It's a line and if you, you can tip over and go too far, and then it becomes really impactful on your mental health. So I say it's like anything, a little bit of, of what you fancy does you good, but you can have too much of a good thing. And so you've got to keep that under control.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And I love how you're constructive because it's not sort of self-doubt, but it's more like, oh, can I do this how? And you use the word how in one of your questions. And that turns it into something that you can action and that's constructive that can lead to, as you say, consulting other people overseas or looking at the research.
1: One of the hardest things, somebody asked me, What's the idea, being a surgeon or being a mom? I thought, oh, God, I had surgical training. I have a framework of reference that I can look at. But, you know, when you think about some things on the personal front, on the home front, you have role models like my mom and all, but she didn't have the six kids I have. She had the four kids she had sometimes you make decisions and you sometimes you make demands over the people you love most and you think ouch i don't really do that (laughs) you know unfortunately they love you and they forgive you and but again it's an environment where you learn together and sometimes the framework is a harder one to to feel because you know maybe you could go to dr seuss book or whatever but i've never been in that space i've you know, feel and try and be receptive to my demands that I've put on my family and hopefully together we've kind of bumbled along and through so, so what would your
2: advice to your younger self be relating to juggling your family priorities and everything else you've
1: got on your plate it's interesting isn't it? I think life is a compromise but don't compromise yourself what do you mean by that because I think you have to understand that, you know, the world's not put out there to, oh, you were living, is it? You know, you've, you've got to work within this space. You've got to live within this space of, uh, that's constructed around you. You can influence it. But it's the influence that you have is not for your sole benefit. And the, the sooner you learn that, the better. Because the decisions we make individually about our health and wellness, for example, affect us, absolutely. But they affect the whole community. So I think compromising because of a situation but when it, that compromise comes to compromising yourself, your beliefs, your values, that's clearly a line you, have, you need to be drawn. So your advice
2: to your younger self would be not to compromise your beliefs and your values.
1: Yeah. But understand life is a compromise, yes. However, you've got to stay true to your beliefs and values. And, you know, integrity, honesty are so fundamental.
2: Yeah. It's finding that, that balance, isn't it, between that compromise and, and your values and boundaries. Yes, I I know, you know, one of the things that you've been doing that probably not that many burn specialists are doing is you've actually been commercializing a lot of your research with with the spray on skin. What have you learned through that process of getting something commercialized?
1: I think that's, I mean, a process that Marie and I started 20 years ago. Certainly, it was a very steep learning curve at the beginning because we were working way outside our frame of reference and training. Scientist and a surgeon, what do we know about marketing and funding, business, etc.? Commercialization was pretty skinny. And like many things, then it's all about the team building a team, building a team around you. What do I know about IP? Not a lot. Therefore, we have to work with people who don't understand that. And so you build a team and the commercialization side of things is something that I'm not involved in now because it's up and running and off and off it's gone because it's you know it's not a core skill set of mine, though I had an exposure and I was at the privilege to drive it and to drive it early and in those early stages is when many things kind of fall by the wayside. but I had and Marie and the collectively we had the passion and the energy to make sure it didn't fall by the wayside before we had it sustainable by building a team around it that could sustain it. So I think what I learned was that you can't know everything and you can't expect that of yourself, but the only thing you can expect of yourself and others is to do your best. And it sounds trite, but to bring your A game to the table is the best you can do. And that's all you can expect of others and recognize how many of those A games in which particular fields of endeavor you need to make a particular subject sustainable is the key really because things aren't simple and you need to understand how to work together and how to work across boundaries. And I think our young people do that better than we were. We were a bit siloed in our education and training and I've had the privilege of being able to break down a few of those silos and certainly these days you can see with double degrees and all sorts of different things that go on, That education is, in some part, less siloed, and the the young folks can talk the language across boundaries in a way that we didn't do naturally. Yeah, so I think that's kind of progress.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and talking of progress, there still aren't that many female surgeons. But when you first started, um, there must have been very few.
1: What was your experience like? I think I actively sought people that were going to support me and help me through this whole business, and so. You know, when we've had a period of time recently looking at harassment in surgery and bullying and all those things, I, I stepped back and I thought, yeah, it was there. I could see it, but I was too busy running a front ahead of, of the pack to actually let it stick from my perspective. I did cop a bit here and there. I always laughed and thought, well, you have to be bigger and uglier than that to get me down <laughs> and just kept on moving, you know? So I was fortunate in, in that it wasn't. For me, such that it was impactful, I managed to push on through and push past it. And that's not to make light of it in any way, because I understand and I see some people really compromised by this behavior. And whether it be bullying or sexual harassment or based on religion or color or anything, I, I have a real issue with that. I think, yeah, what what I want to do is bring the people to the table that are best for the job. And I think we learn from diversity. And I think take the blinkers off and, you know, let's work together is my mantra. (laughs) So I, I have no tolerance for all that kind of stuff.
0: What advice do you give your daughters when it comes to going after their careers and for that matter also dealing with any potential sexual harassment, bullying or just
1: perhaps some bias? I think work hard enough so that they can't ignore you. And maybe that's not the right kind of advice on one hand because making sure that you can't be bypassed by being the most productive and the hardest working, I don't think is the advice I specifically give to my daughters. It's all of them, the boys as well really understand if this is something you want to do, then it's worth working for.
2: Just changing the subjects a little bit, Fiona, you were named Australian of the Year in 2005, and I'm sure that that no doubt came with lots of
1: commitments as well as lots of opportunity. What was the experience like? I, I still have struggled to find words to describe it. It was so extraordinary and unique and out there and amazing and all that kind of, and it, it just doesn't do it justice. Most of my life I've worked to a goal, you achieve the goal, and you work out where the next one is, and you work out how to do that. you know. And it's then you get this thing that sort of takes you by, from left field and gives you an opportunity that you could never have dreamt of. And so, it was extraordinary and unique, and it's a really big memory box that one. I think to have the opportunity to have your voice heard by Australia is just phenomenal. And my message was all around that whole personal choice, your wellness, your health, your education, such that the decisions you make could actually influence the, uh, the communities that we live in to move it towards a society dependent upon the integrity of each and every one of us. And I met some amazing people, some amazing things being done. And as I say, the memory box almost isn't big enough for that one. That's Fantastic.
0: Well, Fiona, we're very conscious that you actually have an operating theatre to go to very soon. And so we just wanted to say thank you so much. It's been fascinating and we've really valued your very, very precious time. You have amazing commitments. Australia is very lucky to have you. If listeners were interested in the work you're doing and your foundation, how could they find out more about you?
1: First of all, I must say thank you very much for your kindness and for thinking of me Then your question is how can people support us? Again, thank you for your kindness. And we're on the internet, fionawoodfoundation.com.au. We're there for everyone and I've been very fortunate that lots of people have been there for us. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Fiona. Truly inspiring and
0: all the best with the the operation coming up.
1: Thank you very much indeed. Bye-bye.
0: You. I'm so glad we finished that interview on time. Yeah, it was a bit stressful, wasn't it?
2: We knew we had to finish precisely at a certain time, as Fiona had an
0: operation to perform. And sure enough, just as we were saying goodbye, she literally received the message that her patient was on the operating table. And she sounded so calm. I guess that's all those years of experience. It must be, it must be. You know, what I love about Fiona is her honesty and openness. There were moments in our conversation where you could really hear the emotion in her voice when she thinks about some of her patients. She doesn't pretend that every day is sparkles and rosy, but at the same time, you can so feel her passion and her positivity and her energy for what she does. And gosh, does she do a lot. Sure does. So that's this week's episode
2: done and dusted. If you've enjoyed this conversation, why not pay it forward and share it with a friend? See you in two weeks' time when we'll take you from the operating theatre to cutting-edge artificial intelligence. See you
0: then. Ciao for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods